Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. All right, open your Bibles up to 1 Chronicles chapter 10. We will uh, take off from there. Uh, it is good. We've got, we just blasted through nine chapters, so a really quick two-minute review of where we're at in the book so far. Um, they are coming out of Babylon, and this is Chronicles was written to recruit people to get to leave their comfort in Babylon because Israel did very well there. And to leave everything they know there and come with back to Jerusalem and back to the Holy Land to resettle and rebuild the, the Israel of old. And so chapter 1 gives genealogies of Adam to Israel or Jacob. Chapter 2 goes from Israel to David with some extras thrown in there. Chapter 3 goes from David's family to exile in Babylon. And chapter 4 shows Judah and all the territory they used to have. Chapter 5 shows Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and the valor and the prayer warriors that they used to be. Chapter 6 shows the Levites. There were musicians, priests, cities of refuge, the territory they stayed in. Chapter 7 shows Issachar, Benjamin, Naphtali, the other half-tribe of Manasseh, Ephraim, Asher, and it shows that all of them had leaders, all of them were people of faith, all of them used to be something great. Then chapter 8 shows Benjamin and its territory. Chapter 9 shows the priests, the Levites, and then we saw that word Nethanim. And it, so it shows this really group of people, the Nethanim. They're serving in Jerusalem at the temple. It has a footnote about King Saul and his surviving family, which has grown since they've been in Babylon. And Saul's family is not excluded or disgraced due to the fact that Saul fell. The sins of the fathers are not the sins of the son. So you have this summary of the entire nation of Israel in chapters 1 through 9 that show like all of these guys are coming back and they're coming back in the kingdom. Dan is... Um, obviously left out to the reader like it's clearly like Dan's not part of that equation uh, so something happened historically there so we start the history of Chronicles with chapter 10 and we start the narrative parts or the narrative sides of things verse 1 says now the Philistines fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa so not only do we start not a very fancy history we start a history of Israel that, that they're in the worst of places. They're getting beat up. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Malchishua, Saul's sons. And the battle became fierce against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was godly and afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. This is the most inglorious beginning to a kingdom you would ever see in a history book. Like they started with nothing and God's going to build them up to everything. And that's really Chronicles. That's the theme of Chronicles. So the Philistines were a sea people. They were not Canaanites. They were actually from an island called Crete. And people thought they were their distant relatives or cousins to the Greeks. 
So they had mastered iron. They knew how to use it. The same iron that's going to help uh, the Greeks become a, a world power, that same fighting force. The Philistines were violent. They were traitors, and they used their attachment to the sea and their ability to sail to put settlements all around the Mediterranean. And, in, and then they would go raiding inland. They were a lot like how the Vikings operated, only they built like raiding bases along the coast. And that's what the Philistines did. In Israel, they had a few such cities that were down along that coast, and they would go raid inland and take the Israelites' stuff. Their sheep, their herds, their crops, if they grew any, uh, were fair game to the Philistines. It says the men of Israel after Saul. It's interesting to note that um, when Chronicles talks about Israel, it rarely refers to the division until we actually hit that history. But this is a united Israel, but they're not in very great shape. So we see the beginning of Israel has to wait for Saul to die, and this is kind of the starting point for the narrative. Verse 3 says the battle became fierce against Saul. So Saul's not ready to trust God with his life, and the world gets ugly for him fairly quickly. So Saul dies in shame. He provides an opportunity for the Philistines to mock God, which is what we're going to see. Um, largely because Saul's not after God's heart. And it, he fails to, against God's enemies, and he's not able to fight. He's hit. He was wounded, it says. And there's a connotation here of this wound being more than just a physical wound. There's something busted with Saul, and that's where we start the story. So here's Israel. They got a king, but there's something kind of broken with him. And in the same way that we see Israel in Egypt, and they're not able to worship, there's something wrong that starts that story of Exodus. So we start Chronicles in a very similar way. Jonathan, who dies here, is a loyal, he's a hero by all counts, but he's fighting for Saul, and he simply dies at the beginning of Chronicles. Where in First and Second Aaron Samuel, we saw a lot more narrative around Jonathan. Here we just don't. So the first we hear of him, he dies. Three sons are dead. That doesn't mean that they're all dead. Saul has other sons, which we learned from chapter 9. Uh, notably, Eshbal's line is still active. Then we get to verse 5. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died, and all his house died together. And when all men of Israel who were in the valley saw that, they saw that, they fled, saw that they had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, that kind of rhymes, they forsook their cities and fled, and then Philistines came and dwelt in them. So there is no real territory for Israel at the beginning of Israel. They're overrun, so to speak. So this creates the starting point. They have no real king. They have no real nation. They don't really even have any kind of real sovereignty. They're just victims, and they're getting beat up. They're the kid on the school play yard that just takes it from everybody. So even at this sense, God is getting mocked through their ineptitude as a nation. Verse 8, so it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain. They found Saul and his sons fallen on milk goboa. Nobody took care of their bodies. And they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among the people. See how quickly this goes to a spiritual thing? Like to them, to the Philistines, this was a spiritual victory, not just a physical military victory. They put these things before the idols. Verse 10. Then they put his armor in the temple of their gods, and they fastened his head to the temple of Dagon. The idea is that their god gets to look upon the fallen kings because they believe Dagon conquered Yahweh. 
and here's the king's head to prove it. This is inglorious. It's, it's, it's humiliating. The God of Israel is completely disgraced because Saul wouldn't follow him and because he followed his own heart. And the king and the agent of that God are now put into humiliation. And when all Jabesh-Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons, and they brought them to Jabesh and buried their bones under the tamarisk tree at Jabeth and fasted seven days. Just a couple sentences, but this is the beginning for the chroniclers. That when all this stuff gets ugly, the valiant men say, forget it, we're going to make this right. Right? And honestly, there is something that flips with good men where it's like, enough of this nonsense, enough of, enough of this degrading of God. We're done with this. And at the risk of their life, honestly, they're raiding, the, they have to go into the temple of Dagon to get that head, which means they're fighting their way in and they're probably fighting their way out. So these are men that are willing to fight. And they're willing. And why are they willing to fight? To honor a, a king that didn't even follow after the Lord very well. But he was God's king. He was Israel's king. And again, for the Chronicles, they're trying to teach people how to believe in their own country, right? Have some pride in what they're doing. So the mighty men, this is Pride Month, so let's look at biblical pride, right? And we're going to do, so the mighty men of Israel made this right. The mission goes on. They're down, but they're not out. And think about the message that sends for a, a core virtue for Israel. We're never completely out of the game. And if only a few valiant men, they're not even named, they're just the Jabesh Gilead men. If only a few men just say, we're going to live this life the way God told us to, what a beautiful thing that is. That founds a nation more than Saul did. And David hasn't even been introduced yet in the text. But just a few men saying, no, we're done. And they're called valiant. So this sets a tone. And we've had that word valiant a few times now in Chronicles. When we went through the history of these different tribes, they were noted, some of them, for their valiance, for their honor, because they were mighty. They were decent. So it sets the tone. The circumstance doesn't set the tone. The heart and the character of the people of God set the tone. I love that. And again, I'm just getting this out of two verses, right? When they heard all that the Philistines had done, yeah, the world is horrible. The valiant men arose. And the word arose there has to do with way more than just getting up out of your chair. They woke up. Okay, we're done. And we're, and we're willing to risk our lives to set things right. We'll either die or we'll set things right. One of the two will happen. And that outcome to them is not there. That means they left their wife, they left their kids, and they went and risked their lives to put this right and to not have the God of, of Israel be humiliated by, the, by what they did to Saul. And frankly, they're going to go down in history for that risk that they took. This is what makes them noted. I would add one more thought with this. <laughs> they brought them to the Jabesh and buried their bones under a Tamash tree as Jabesh and fasted seven days. They too, like the Philistines, see this as a spiritual battle. Fasting is an act of spiritual warfare. And in the Bible, whenever we see fasting, it is to do spiritual warfare. And so for those of us that have done fasting or tried fasting, I struggle with it, as you can see. But fasting is a tool that we can use when we, are, when we have had enough of something. And you can fast and you can fight that battle. You can purify your heart. You can purify your mind. There's lots of medical research that shows what fasting does. When it's done appropriately and healthy-like, it is a way to do battle. And these guys, they went in, they risked their lives, they got the body, they came back, and then they fasted seven days, which means they're starting a battle here. The battle didn't start with Saul. He was seeking after himself, 
and that wasn't even God's fight. But these valiant men started something new when they did this. I just love it. Notice the faithfulness, the honor, the fasting, the act of war that they carry out and how they do it. Their first act of war, they don't note that they killed a bunch of Philistines. They note that they preserved and did what was right by their king. And that's it. And, and again, I think Israel, like, this is how we fight our battles. So verse 13, so Saul died for his unfaithfulness. They note why he died, which, had, which he'd committed against the Lord because he didn't keep the word of the Lord. And also because he consulted a medium for guidance. This guy was a failure. But he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. And now we get David introduced. Very quick introduction to Israel. Yeah, here's a group of people that were just kind of losers. And then these valiant men showed up, and then the king got handed to David. Now, David's had some prep work. He's been running from Saul. We know this from Samuel when we read it. He's been hiding in caves. He's surrounded himself with men that we're going to get introduced to in the next chapter. So Chronicles starts with a cautionary tale. Saul died because he was unfaithful. Now, look at what's going to happen to the faithful men of Israel. They're going to found a nation. I just, this is just beautiful. Then, and the other thing is Saul went to a medium for guidance. Part of Saul's problem, he was unfaithful because he didn't drive out the Amalekites, which God told him to do. So he didn't listen to God. But the other piece is he's going to everywhere else to look for advice and guidance. And, and, I, and this idea that this poisons the well for Saul. He didn't like what God said, so he went to a medium to try to get other advice. And in doing that, you, you generally know a person's heart based on where they go for help. When things are tough, when things are in trouble, where do people go? And, it, and, and it's interesting as you go through life and you, and you have people that say they're following the Lord and doing other things, but then you listen to them when they get into trouble. Because as we get older, body parts start to go. You know, things start to happen. Families go through their trials and whatnot. And you've seen people that'll come up and say, oh, They'll, you know, and they'll even be like, Sean, I just need you to pray for me. I've gone and I've seen 10 doctors. I've tried to deal with this thing. And then their last resort is to pray about the issue, right? So where is their faith? Where's their trust? And I'm not saying don't go to doctors. There's another way to do it, which is I have this thing, this pain that I have. Can you pray for it? Because I intend to go to a doctor and try to see. But I want prayer before I even walk into that medical industry. Now, in that case, like, where's the faith at? And wherever you put it, is the faith first with God and you go to God first? Or do you go to God after everything else has failed? Or in Saul's case, you go to God because you just want another answer. Or the same thing with current events. Like, what does the world say about how I should act, how I should behave, how I should believe on a certain hot button issue? Oh, the world says this and the world says that and the world says this. Now, what does the Bible say about that? And it really shows you where their faith is because they're looking to the world for what they should think before they go to the word of God. The opposite of that, the flip side of that is instead of going to the mediums and trying to have them tell you what to think, or the media is what we call them today, right? We just say, you know what? Hey, here's this thing. What does God say about that thing before I hear anything from the world about it? And in that, I found a foundation that I can live on before I'm interested in what the world has to say about the issue. Now, I, I'm going to tell you right now on a lot of the hot button issues today, this is going to put you in conflict with a lot of people out there because the Bible is very clear on certain issues that are getting really muddied in our conversation today. But Saul's fault is this. He looks everywhere except for God. 
in what he does. He's trying to be a king on his own strength and on what the world says and on what other nations say, what the world says. But it says here, but he did not inquire of the Lord at that time. So what he did was a mockery to God and he became a mockery to God. So he's supposed to be representing and instead he's representing a failed state to the, to the Philistines. What all the world sees is an absolute failure. And that's what happens. Philistines didn't see a mighty Israel or mighty men. He saw a weak man that looked everywhere else for, for his answers than God. And the Philistines love seeing weak people. And the world loves to see weak Christians that will bend over for anything, compromise for everything, never stand up for anything because they're not ambassadors of anything. They're just seeking after the world. And so you see Chronicles trying to instruct these Babylonian Hebrews as to what Israel is and what it means. And it's a thing in the heart before it's a thing of genetics or a thing of nationality. It's who you are on the inside. So God lets Saul die. He withdraws his blessing. The enemies swoop in on him and shoot him with arrows. And then he turns the kingdom over to this guy named David. God's choice. God's example for a king. We can be grateful that's all here, but from chapter 1 to here, we get the history of the world from Adam to David. And the Chronicles has given you a good history book. Chronicles 11 digs right in on that. Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron. This is where David had been ruling, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh also in time past. Even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over my people Israel. The heads of the tribes of Israel got sick of Saul. Saul was always looking after himself. And at some point, the, the, the people that were in charge said, We would like to return to a godly kingdom. So the writer skips over seven years of David ruling Judah alone because Judah had already put him in that position. The, I think the reason the chronicler skips this is this is a point of division. The other tribes feel less than because Judah was smart enough to put David in charge first. Chronicles just skips that point because it doesn't help the, uh, the argument of Israel as a united nation. And that was a point of division with right after Solomon. So Israel, it starts with verse 1, then Israel all came together. That's what's important. They're united. They're all on the same page. It's a clear focus. There's no splitting of the nation, no indication of it ahead of time. And then three marks of leadership. We're your bone. You're the one who led. You shall shepherd. So what we're going to get in chapter 11 is a leadership 101 course. This is how you build kingdoms. And the first thing in building a kingdom is recognizing what a leader actually does and what a leader actually looks like. And in this sense that we're of your bone, David's one of them. He's kin. He's family. He's an Israelite. Like, he's not above them. He's not like Ptolemy ruling over the Egyptians. He's, he's absolutely bone of their bone. He's of their flesh. So even though they're from different tribes, they all come together and say, you know what, David, you're one of us. Now, how does that distinguish him from Saul? Well, Saul, in a lot of ways, thought he was above them. And he, that he was ruling over people. But leaders lead their own people first. Second thing is, you're the one that led. Leaders actually lead, right? You don't hire a leader. You don't put them before a committee. Leaders just lead. And you can't really stop it. They just do it. Because they have some resolve in them. And they do that. And, and, and this is one of those things, like, what they're doing is they're simply recognizing what's already there when they pick David. 
David was already doing all the things that, that you couldn't stop him from doing. You could kick him out and exile him from the country, and he just finds a bunch of miscreants and leads them into godly men, and he disciples people in caves in the wilderness because this is what leaders do. They lead. So he's of their, he's of their family. He's of their, of their kin. He's somebody that's already leading. And then three, you shall shepherd. They recognize what God has said and they respond to it. A king should be a shepherd. A king should be a servant of his people. So David has this clear and known calling from God and they agree with and resound with what God has said. This is very different than Saul or the account of Saul that we saw before. The shepherd is a humble role. It's the servant's role. In any society ever, the shepherd is the least important job in the society. Just somebody who can make sure wolves don't attack. To just have a human. It was, it was generally 10, 11-year-old kids. They'd give them a sling and a staff and say, make sure nothing happens to the sheep. So David was out watching the sheep when, when Samuel came by and asked Jesse to see his children. He didn't even show David to, Jesse, to Samuel. Because the assumption is you don't want to see my, the littlest kid, that ruddy-haired little nincompoop. He's out with the sheep. He showed him all the impressive sons, but not the shepherd. And at this time, Israel, understanding what God said to David, you shall shepherd my people Israel, elevates the word shepherd from the least important to the most important in the society. The one who's willing to give their life for others is suddenly a leader. And that's part of what defines the leader. The shepherd is willing to put their life between the wolf and the sheep, even if it makes them unpopular with the wolf. So they see leadership, they support leadership, kings build kingdoms, and David's our model king. Verse 3, therefore all elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. Samuel had already anointed him. Judah has already anointed him. So they announce this in Chronicles, like this is the first anointing. And for the chronicler, this is the one that mattered. He's anointed king over all Israel at this moment. But God made a promise. It's been fulfilled. It says, before the Lord, again, panim, in the Lord's face. And they put this situation and they said, we're going to put this in God's hands and, and we're going to anoint David, but we don't anoint David. The anointing that really matters is that God has anointed David. And we're just going to acknowledge that. So the word of the Lord by Samuel, they recognized Samuel as a prophet that God has a plan, and it was not Saul's lineage that it's going to be there, and God can move the kingship if he wants to. So it's God's decision. So now we get about the city of David. The first thing that happens as you build a kingdom is a kingdom needs a capital. They've got a king, now they need a capital. Verse 4, And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. Now the Jebusites are people that Saul should have driven out because they're in Canaan. But he didn't drive them out because other accounts show that they were giant. They were big people and they were scary people. And Jerusalem's a really defendable city on a hill. So they were scared. And so they go in and, and it doesn't give a lot of account. It just goes that David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus. And the Jebusites were there, the inhabitants of the land. The other thing this means is that David picked a city that nobody could claim as their own. He picked a neutral location. This is part of why in America they picked Washington, D.C., it was territory that wasn't part of any state. It was neutral territory. It still is. But the idea is no state then could claim premin preeminence over any of the others. 
And so by picking Jerusalem, this is kind of a wise decision. They're going to pick land that no Israelite can make claim to because they were all too chicken to go up and fight the Jebusites. But David does. In verse 5, the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you shall not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. Like he renamed the city. Now David said, I love the fact that they, that they just give this little account. The Jebusites are like, you shall not come in here. And then he does. Right? You wish there was more story. That could be a whole novel right there if any of you want to write historical fiction. Right? So I imagine them as little peas on the wall, like the Veggie Tales with the Jericho story. Same kind of image as Jericho, right? Is that you got these people inside the city saying, you can't take us. Who do you think you are? But David just does. Verse 6, now David said, whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, went up first and became chief. We get introduced to Joab. Here's our second major character in the kingdom. Here's the weird thing. We know from Samuel and Kings, Joab was captain before David said this. So maybe David was trying to like get a new captain, and this was like his technique. But he, you know, he says this, and Joab takes the lead, leader's lead. And then David dwelt in, the strong, dwelt in the stronghold. Therefore, they called it the city of David, and he built the city around it. From the Milo to the surrounding area, Joab repaired the rest of the city. So David went on and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. You see how they're setting up a kingdom? Kingdom just starts with one city, one guy that wants to follow the Lord, a group of people that want to follow the Lord. Now we got a city that wants to follow the Lord, and it ends with, and the Lord of hosts was with him. We get a reference to the Milo here. Uh, we get a reference to Jerusalem, which means teaching of peace. The city's relevant even before the temple. This is important because as they're calling people out of Babylon, there's no temple. But there are valiant men back in Babylon. There are a group of people that want to follow Ezra and Nehemiah. There is a city to rebuild. And the first thing they do when they go back to Jerusalem is they start to rebuild the city. So they're following this same pattern and they're showing people this pattern is how Israel was built in the first place. The task of rebuilding becomes a theme of Chronicles that we're going to see again and again and again. The, how important that task is. The reference to the Milo, they're excavating this now. And the Milo is an area where they built up an entire side of a hill. In other words, they terraformed to the point where it's not just a terracing, it is a stone rock face that's kind of an engineering feat. Not like pyramid level feat, but pyramid level technology. The ability to take that much weight and force and move it and, and move the city out. It's a pretty narrow hill that Jerusalem sits on. So the Milo reinforced a whole side, which people believe is how they could build the temple where they built it. So this Milo becomes an important feat, and they're digging it out right now. Then David dwelt in the stronghold. Uh, it, the first thing David does is he builds and manages a stronghold for the people of God, a place they can be safe. And again, this is how kingdoms get built. Strongholds are defendable. They're central. They're historically. Jerusalem is unclaimed in that it, it is no tribe can put a, a tag on it. And then, then it says, Joab repaired the rest of the city. The very first thing after this victory is the military leader becomes the civic leader. So he's not just a soldier with arms. He's a soldier in building communities and cities. And there's an interesting way in which the Bible frames the, uh, the idea of a captain. It's, there's a military captain that defends the sheep, but there are also military captains that build things. They repair things. They fix things. They make order out of chaos. And they do it because it's in their heart and in their character. Verse 9 says, So David went on and became great. 
So this is the beginning. You, you have this introductory language. This is where it started for David. One city, one place. Not without trial, not without hurt. He's going to have betrayal. He's going to have want. He's going to have the whole thing with Bathsheba. He's going to lose his reputation and gain it again. But at the end of the day, Chronicles says David became great. And it is because here we are 2,000 years later, actually more than that, talking about David 3,000 years later. We're still talking about David. We still name our children David. And we know exactly who we're naming him after. David went, went into this situation with great challenges. He's had great chapters of his life. He's had a lot of pain and betrayal in his life up to this point. But this is where he becomes great. He becomes great because he's ready to lead when God calls on him. Amen. So David is great, but God gets the glory and the Lord of hosts was with him. He's only as great as the God that he serves. Verse 10. Now these were the heads of the mighty men. They go right into this list of mighty men. These were the heads of the mighty men whom David had who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom with all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Now in the Bible there are a couple kingdoms. There is the throne of David getting established right now. And the throne of David is the kingdom of the Jews that will last. From that kingdom is going to come a seed from which there will be a second kingdom that will grow out of it. And that's the kingdom of Jesus, which will last forever. So we have the founding of David's kingdom right now. And these are the heads. So David created not just a, a, you know, you think of the ancient world and like old history movies, and they'd get a bunch of people in cheap pleather suits, and then they would just say charge, and it'd be this motley crew of people just charging at each other in those old historical movies. But David created order with these men. There was structure. There was organization to who did what, where people did things, whose job had what, and people were happy to be part of something bigger than themselves. So I would suggest building a kingdom, when it says now these were the heads, building a kingdom involves roles, jobs, duties, things where people can be trusting the faithfulness of each other to do their job so that their other jobs are going to happen too. And if everybody's doing their job, the kingdom gets built and it moves forward. So this list is relevant to the writers of Hebrew, be it Ezra or a team of scribes around Ezra. This list is important to them. It's a big deal. It shows that David was surrounded by heroes. It wasn't just him. And think about that message for Ezra and Nehemiah. Israel got built by heroes, not by Ezra and Nehemiah. Right? David's a shepherd. He's just taking care of this process. And so this list becomes really important. They needed heroes to rebuild Jerusalem from all the tribes, all the, even Saul's descendants that get listed in chapter 9. Anybody that's faithful that wants to follow God can be mighty. And this list says that all over the place. These men did not start as mighty men. And I want to point that out. 1 Samuel 22. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was disoriented, discontented, they gathered themselves unto David. Right? These people were losers. They had done nothing in life that got them ahead. And, they be, and he became, David became captain, captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. How do kingdoms get built? They get built in the kingdom of God. They get built by people that have humbled themselves because they haven't done it on their own. And at that point of humbling of self, you can give yourself to something greater than yourself. At the point of humbling yourself, you can give what's left to something that's greater than yourself. And that's what God calls us to. He invites everyone into the kingdom of God 
to give themselves to something that's greater than themselves, to commit something. So what changed from them being distressed to guys that impress? What changed them from being in debt to being blessed? What changed them from being discontents to men of substance? Look really carefully. It is God who strengthened them. Verse 10, who strengthened themselves in him, in his kingdom with all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. God made them great through David. So they're with David, number one. They're in his kingdom. And his kingdom at this point, by the way, in Hebron is pretty minor, right? Even before Hebron, they were joining him in the caves. And they lived life with them. They like made little campfires in the cave and they told stories and they had food and they raided Philistine camps for fun. That's what they did. Um, and they joined and he organized them and he taught them about the law of God. Verse, it, it says they were with all Israel. So they're not just with David, they're with the kingdom. So they're with each other. There's a brotherly kindness between them, even though they come from different places, as we're going to see. They were family. And that family nature of David and his men made a kingdom. It built something special. And then three, it's according to the word that David is teaching them in those caves. This is what God says about your life. This is what God says about pride, about money, about your relationships with the opposite sex. This is what God says about how you're supposed to live your life. It, does, it doesn't feel right because it's supernatural. And your flesh is going to tell you one thing, but God says this thing. Do it God's way and watch what he does. And these men, they didn't have anything to lose. Man, what a good place to start your walk with the Lord. You got nothing to lose. Just give it to the Lord. And then it's like, as you see your life get put back together, you're like, I never want to go back to that old self. That stuff was garbage. I never want that in my life again. So they grew because they were there. They were together like a family and they followed the Torah. T-T-T. There, together, Torah. I know that's a stretch. Likewise, they were with Jesus. They submitted to the kingship. They're with the family of the church. They are studying the word of God together. I don't... I don't know about you, but there's a huge connection here to what the chronicler is trying to emphasize and what we see Jesus emphasizing in the church. Be there. Give your life to it. Be part of the family, brotherly friendship, and study God's word. And it makes you mighty in God's eyes because in doing that, you take on a valiant role of serving other people than yourself. It's awesome how that works. So we go up to Jesus, we sit at the throne, and we make Jesus king just like these men made David king. It's mirrored. And it shows that they made David into a king because they honored him. And we make Jesus our king because we honor him. Kings need followers. And I want to line up and say, just like Mary did, look at me. I'm your maidservant. Lord, I'll serve you. I'm a bondservant to Christ, like Paul said. Like we become servants of the king. So the mighty men also listed in Samuel 23 have, are, are called the 30 sometimes. If you count them all up, there's actually 37. We know that in that list of 37, we have like... Um, some people that are that have died. So it could be that they kept the number at 30. It could be that 30 is like a nickname, like they had bench warmers, right? So it could be that they would send out 30 a time. It could be that some of them got old and retired and they brought in new people. We don't know. Um, but people say, well, that's an error in the Bible because they call them the 30. But I would say as a proper noun, that's just a general term. And the fact that there's 37, for me at least, that doesn't break my faith in any way. So, and this is the number of mighty men who David had 
First, they list Joshua Beam. Uh, he's Joshua Basha Betheth in Samuel. So Joshua Beam is likely an abbreviated version of that name that we see in Samuel. Uh, they're both the son of a Hakmonite, so it's the same person. The chief of the captains, he lifted up his spear against 300 and killed by him at one time. So first of all, they note his feet on the battlefield, but the fact that he's over all of the captains, he's like the CEO of the mighty men. He's the administrator. He runs everything. So these guys all have duties, as we're going to see. And I'm going to suggest that with the introduction to each of these characters, we see a different kind of personality type that is in it is what builds kingdoms. What builds kingdoms. And the first one they lift is the guy who's in charge of it. He's the administrator. He's the leader of leaders. And so you see that this administration character of Joshua Beam is part of what builds David, David's kingdom. He has a guy that runs things. And David can focus on the spirit, the direction and the vision, but he has somebody in operations handling stuff. That's what he does. Administration builds kingdoms. So if you're one of those kinds of people, be proud of yourself. You're needed in God's kingdom. Or you get people like me that lose receipts all the time. So verse 12, after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, who is one of the three mighty men. We'll get into that. One of the three. So the three is another title of these guys. The three mighty men. He was with David at Pashdamim. And now the Philistines were gathered for battle and there was a piece of ground full of barley. So the people fled from the Philistines, but they, implying David and Eleazar, stationed themselves in the middle of that barley field and they defended it and they killed Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. This is in 2 Samuel 23. All the other men run away. Eleazar stays by David's side. <laughs> you know what builds kingdoms? Dudes that don't leave when things get tough. People that stick it out, that builds a kingdom. I love just the image of this. Verse 13, he was with David. Friends build kingdoms. Not power, not money, friendship. And this is the way God does things. The world does things very different. You want to build kingdoms? You know, make an electric car and a boatload of money and you can build yourself an earthly kingdom. You want a heavenly kingdom around you? Build friendships. Be side by side. Hang out and do things together. Spend time together. Get ready because at some point spiritually, you're going to get a chance to defend a barley field. Or maybe figuratively, you're going to get a chance to stand together and be there for each other when things get tough. By the way, defending a barley field, strongly, you know, when you look at the history of this, this is what the Philistines did. They waited for the crops to grow up under Israelite labor, and then they came and stole all of the, the fruits of the labor. They just took it. So what David and, and Eleazar are doing here is they're protecting the food source for Israelites. They're protecting their homes. And they're protecting their families. Enough, you can't steal our food. And they're willing to die for it. They stand in the barley field, and they take their stand. So iron sharpens iron. They're protecting each other's back. The military, they say, they've got your six. What would happen is you'd have two soldiers that would stand back to back so that 360, they're protecting each other. And they rely on the other person to cover their back. No human being can see all the way around. We're not owls. We have to have friends that have our back and see what's behind us, see our blind side. And cover it. And that's Eleazar. You got administrator Joshua Beam. You got loyal friend Eleazar. Man, you can't do wrong in life, even with those two friends in your life. 
but oh, it, it goes on because we're not just building a life here. We're building a kingdom. So you have the third of the three not being named. <laughs> this is great. The more I thought about this, the more I thought how brilliant this was. First of all, let me point out that it, the three were head over this group of 30. And we got Joshua Beam, we got Eleazar, but the next person we just get this story about the three and they never name the third person. So this is really curious because when we get down to the list of mighty men, the name's right there. They know the name of the third person. They choose to not include it in this next story. And that's a really curious kind of thing they've done. Verse 15. We get to see the love of these mighty. This is what made them mighty. They risked their life to get David a snack. It's just super simple. Verse 15. Now three of the 30 chief men went down to the rock to David and they came to the cave of Adullam. And the army of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim, which shows you how far the Philistines had invaded. They pretty much, there's no territory left for Israelites. And David was then in the stronghold and in the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and they took it and brought it to David. So here's just this passing thought. David's hometown was Bethlehem. He grew up there. And he grew up, and you, you ever have water like from where you grew up? Like for me, if I, I think like North Dakota, they got this water that's kind of orange, you know, and, and you drink it and it's got, it just tastes like iron, like you're drinking an I-beam. And you're going, mmm. But when you're a kid and that's icy cold and you've been out in the heat all day, you're just, something about it, just, wow, I love that. It's just great. I'm thinking Bethlehem wasn't that because surrounding Bethlehem's a lot of granite and stone. That water would have been crystal clear if they're pulling out of those wells. It would have been the stuff that we get like when, after it's hyper-filtrated and glacier spring cold. And he's thinking of that water and it's hot and they're in these caves and they're dirty because they, they don't have nice showers and cave systems. And he's thinking, oh, if I could just have a drink of water from that well of my childhood, I really miss it. I know that well. It's delicious. You know, he's just thinking this out loud. And I think David learns the lesson because when you're a leader and you think your desires out loud, you got loyal followers that want to help you out with that. Some of them will go and risk their life for it. And I think David, just as a young man, is learning, okay, I got to control my tongue if I want to build kingdoms, right? So, but anyways, they go out. Bethlehem in the Hebrew is house of bread. It's interesting that they want water from the house of bread. Uh, Bethlehem as a town is notable because Rachel is buried there. This is the burial site of Rachel. This is where Ruth and Naomi came to meet Boaz. So you got the story of three different women that are all in this town of Bethlehem, this little town of Bethlehem, right? Up in the hill country. David also said this with longing. He wistfully wants something. And I think this is honestly because David corrects this later in the story. But this idea of wistfully looking back to something that was right? Oh, I wish it could be like back in the day when they were baptizing people down at Pirate's Cove. And I wish it could be like when all the hippies were getting, I wish it could be like this. We get a lot of that in the Calvary Chapel movement. Oh, back in the day, it was so awesome. The problem with that is you don't build kingdoms with that. You actually threaten the lives of your people when you think like that. Because God's not going to do what he did 30 years ago. He says, I'm going to put new wine in new wineskins. I'm going to do something new with each generation. 
And he's continued to do that for 2,000 years, surprising us, delighting us. If we want living water, we don't think back to what happened in our childhood. We think to what's happening tomorrow. What's God going to do next? Because he says, I'm the, if you even, even knew who was talking to you, you'd know that I, this water here, you're going to get thirsty again. You're going to wistfully want more of it later. But with me, I'm the living water. And you'll never be thirsty again because you can drink from that well if you want to. But here's David thinking of Bethlehem. Oh, man, it'd be great in the day. And I think this story does two things. It shows that you, you, the loyalty of these three men and why they were in charge. They weren't in charge because of skill or talent. They note what they did on a battlefield. But this is part of why David trusts them is they'll give their life for this guy. And so there's, there's a, a thing there. And David is going to be, should resist the earth. But you know, what builds kingdoms in this story is loyalty, kindness, brotherly kindness, which Peter calls us all to. That's what we're supposed to be doing in the church is this kind of thing. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but he poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these three men who have put their lives in jeopardy? For at, That's a rhetorical question, by the The answer is no, you don't do that. For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. This is what made them mighty. It's not how many people they killed. It's how many people they loved. How many people they cared for. Very different from how the flesh thinks of mighty. But the Bible's defining what it means by a mighty man. Someone willing to give their life for a friend. So David's the king that learned to not look backwards or take advantage of kindness. We don't do that. But he's so moved that the water is actually too good for him because of how it was attained. Even though he's thirsty, even though he might want it, he pours it out on the ground. And the pouring out of the water is this act of respect and honor for the sacrifice of these three men. Instead of the men putting themselves under David, go get the water, David pours out the water to put himself under their, their sacrifice. So you got two... You got David and you got these three men both seeing themselves as less than the other. This is kingdom building stuff. That we're not over one another, we're with one another. So both David and the nameless three that aren't named in this story show humility, they show mutual respect because humility builds kingdoms. This is how to do it in the, in the kingdom of God. Instead, they look to God who has the living water that never runs dry and, and we get a not so subtle foreshadowing here. Right? Oh, little town of Bethlehem, out of which comes living water that will be poured out for the love of the people of God. Mm. You see the connection here? Like, it's pretty like this idea of what's going on. This is what made him mighty the care, the love, the sacrifice, the kindness. This is what kings are made of. And we see the same thing happen with Jesus. In 2 Samuel 23 11, I'll give you the name of the third person. It's Shama the Herahite. That's the third person. Never gets named in this story. And I think that's an interesting point. He's guarding the town's food supply um, when he shows up in 2 Samuel. In verses 11 and 12, you got Joshua Beam and Eleazar, but the third one's a guy named Shama. And frankly, I like the name Shama. I don't know why we stopped using that. Like, if anybody's going to have a kid, put Shama on your list. It's a great name. Shama. What do you call him for short? Shama Shama. You know, you can... I don't know. Oh, that's longer? That's not for short? So he's, I, the fact that he's not aimed, I think, is making a point by the writer. So it may be that they're honoring him, that he was so humble he wouldn't want his name listed with these things. It could be that he wanted his king to get the glory and not himself. 
in a story about humility that makes a lot of sense. And part of what builds kingdoms here is this behind-the-scenes guy, this not-named guy. Any event, anything you want to do, there are probably an army of people behind the scenes making that happen that don't get named and they don't get put on a stage. There's hundreds of shamas that make music concerts happen and big church events happen that make church on any given Sunday. There's shamas in the background making that happen. Shama, shama, shama. They're all over the place. So maybe that's, you know, maybe I'm starting to speak in tongues. Verse 20, Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men. He killed them, and he won a name amongst these three. Of the three, he was more honored than the other two men. Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain the first three. In other words, we're going on to a third name, and the writer makes it very clear this is not Shama, right? I'm not naming the third person of the mighty men. This is another three that he's part of. So he's going on to a fourth guy named Abishai. He also, I should point out in 2 Samuel 21, this guy killed a giant just like David did. David killed Goliath. Um, Abishai killed another one. And David starts a fad because they're going to finish. Goliath had four relatives. And David, remember when he picked up his stones, he grabbed five stones. There were five giants of the Philistines. And when David kills Goliath, these mighty men, they will take out the other four and in doing that, gain, gain renown. And, I, and, I, and again, you've heard David and Goliath and often it's an image of the giants in our life, the battles we fight. And if that's the case, David didn't fight all of his own battles. He had family that helped fight battles. And so that image of killing the giants in your life, but you don't do that on your own. David didn't do that on his own. There were five giants. He killed one of them, and his brothers killed the rest. So we're going to see people like Abishai. Part of what elevates him is this. The narrative that gets told in Chronicles, though, is that he beats up 300 people. I want to address this whole one person killing hundreds of other people. First of all, he doesn't have a machine gun. He has a staff or a spear. How do you kill 300 people with a spear? And there's two ways to approach this biblically. One this is an actual miraculous intervention of God to give a covering to a warrior or a battle rage to a warrior that makes him fairly unstoppable on the battlefield. So one way to approach this is that they were covered by God and God actually gave them supernatural strength and endurance to fight a battle where they killed 300 people. That's one approach to it. The second approach to it is more of a practical, non-miraculous approach to say, okay, well, how does that happen exactly? And first, you'd talk to a soldier about that. Okay, how does one person take out 300? First of all, having a good tactical position will help you do that, which means you're smart. You pick your battlefield. You know where to fight. You pick bottleneck spots. You're not fighting 300 people at once. You're fighting them as they come, right? Second, it takes superior weaponry in your hands. And from a spiritual sense, we got the word of God. We have the best weapon available in the spiritual warfare world. But iron is in short supply for the Israelites because the Philistines wouldn't let them have blacksmiths. So they couldn't make their own weapons. So they either had to steal them from the enemy, which we're going to see in the next story, or they had to secretly blacksmith in, in, in the privacy of their own villages. Right? So this was hard to do. But at the same token, I'm talking about preparation would be a second major element to beat these, to win these kinds of battles. Preparation. Get ready for it. Pick your position, prepare for it, and then superior training. 
If I have superior training, it matters not how many idiots come at me. I can use the same technique over and over and over again and deliver killing blows one after the other. So for those of you that aren't into military, there is something about having martial training that will give you a significant advantage over a bunch of C-rating pirates that are just going for loot and food, right? A trained soldier is the equivalent of many untrained soldiers. So picking the battlefield, having both the spiritual and physical resoluteness, being trained, being exercised, having your muscles in shape, being ready to go. And then you think on that second take, then it's fairly practical and fairly possible. But both there's a spiritual and a physical element that operate together in selecting leaders. This guy was ready to fight. He knew how to pick his battleground. He had some martial talent that he could use. And this made him a leader amongst the, in the kingdom of God. This made him a leader amongst the mighty men to where he's getting named in this kind of way with a story. So he has the blessing of God, but he also has courage and he has talent and he has a work ethic to make it happen. There's a resolve to Abishai. If you can fight that kind of fight, I mean, you're just as good as Joshua Beam when it comes to preparation and training. So I would argue what Abishai shows us is that in the building of kingdoms, talent and competence and perseverance are relevant. This guy knew how to fight, and that makes him valuable in a kingdom. And I think of like the spiritual kingdom that we're here and the battles we're told to fight, which are not of flesh and blood. Like, who are the warriors? Who's ready to share their faith at any time and any moment? Who's able to share their faith with people every single day when you encounter them and run into them? Who's ready, prepared? Who's got the word of God ready to go? They got superior weapons at their disposal. And who's been in training for years to get ready for those moments? Those are going to be leaders in the church. The people ready that know how to fight battles. The other thing is if Abishai knows how to kill 300 Philistines, I would put him in charge of training other people. Right? Like, let's teach people how to fight like Abishai. Whatever martial arts he's using, let's teach that. Because it seems to be effective against Philistines. So then you get to verse 22, one of my favorites, Benaiah. He's the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel. <laughs> okay, I just love the fact that, like, the relation he has to his father is part of what identifies him. And that's okay. That's actually pretty cool who had done many deeds. He's done many deeds. We don't even get all of the things, but here's a couple. He killed a two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. Verse 23, he killed an Egyptian, a man of great height, five cubits tall. In the Egyptian's hand, there was a spear like a weaver's beam, and he went down to him with a staff, wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did. I like that they keep the son of there. He's still the son of Jehoiada. And he won a name among the three mighty men. The three mighty men saw this guy, recognized him, knew who he was. And indeed, he was more honored than the 30, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. So he wasn't one of the chief administrators of the group. He wasn't there. He's a younger guy. But he's a younger guy that did stuff, did a lot of stuff. And so we look at these things and we look at these stories. This is a guy that just keeps outdoing himself. Because I think with Benaiah, you have an internal character that doesn't rest. Just because he killed two lion-like men from Moab doesn't mean this guy's done looking for the next opportunity. Because that's in the past. And then he goes, to the, then he goes into a pit and, and does the lion thing. So he has many deeds that start this out. They're not all recorded. It highlights two lion men, a lion, and a man. You get the connection between the stories? Like, it's pretty clear. So he, 
he's so a man that's like a beast, a beast, and then a, a, a man who is is a beast. And he goes down. What would drive anyone to jump into a lion pit? We need to know something about lion pits and what they were. If you had a lion nearby your village and you had children, this is a major hazard. It's like living on the edge of a forest and you know there's wolves in that forest. The first thing you do is you tell them horrifying fairy tales so your kids don't go into the forest. The second thing you do is you actually watch out and monitor for your kids. You protect against the wolves. But lions were a lot like that in the Middle East. If you had a pack of lions that had taken up near your village, you didn't let your kids go running freely and you put out defenses against lions. One of those defenses is to create a lion pit. And you'd say, well, like in the movies, they put a bunch of spikes at the bottom of the pit. No, they don't. Because if the lion falls into the pit and dies, you just lost three weeks worth of meat for the entire village. You didn't just put spikes in the pit. You put a pit there so the lion couldn't get out. And you'd go check on the pit every week. And then you go, oh, there's a lion down there. And the other thing you do is you don't just leave a lion down there to die of starvation. You lose all the good meat. Somebody has to go into the lion pit. So you'd think to yourself, well, why don't they just shoot arrows down and do this? And I have no idea why that's the case, why they wouldn't just kill the lion from above and get the fresh meat. But you understand the tradition of what this was, why there were lion pits. They were built to be a protection. But this guy goes down into it. The only reason I can even think of to where an adult man would jump into the lion pit is if somebody went into that pit or fell into the pit with the lion and it needs to be protected. At that point, you don't go running back for the arrows. You jump into the pit and you protect the kid. And I don't know if that's the case. The Bible doesn't say it, but it does say he jumped into an iron, a lion pit. And if you're just trying to think of what possible situation would arise to make a human being want to jump into a pit with a lion, maybe Benaiah was just oblivious and he fell into the pit, right? <laughs> that's possible, but that's kind of a stretch because he seems like an intelligent guy who does many deeds, and that would be an embarrassing moment. The lion has to get dealt with. He's the guy that jumps in to deal with it. He's the guy that puts himself in harm's way to protect other people. And it makes the side note of he in the midst of a pit on a snowy day, so there's snow in the Middle East on very rare occasions. Lions then will feed on the sheep. It's a thing. So you got this brutal, violent animal in a pit. It's a snowy day. It's cold. Why would you make the note of it's a snowy day? And maybe it's just because it was. But also you're creating an environment where it's cold. It's dangerous to be injured. So this is, then he gets kills this Egyptian, right? Egyptian in the Bible is always kind of a typecast for the world, the enemies of God's people. So here's a massive enemy of God's people. He's a big one, seven and a half feet tall if you go by a standard cubit. So he's a big man, even by today's standard. So this makes Benaiah a giant killer, but not killing one of Goliath's family in the, the, of Gath. So he's just killing a big guy, but not what they would define as a giant, which says giants were giants. Because this man on a battlefield would have been a danger, him jumping into a lion pit and killing the Egyptian is actually a very similar behavior. It's consistent. If he takes on this giant, then this giant doesn't enter into a battlefield where little, small, five-foot-two Israelites have to fight him. And if he's got a staff like a weaver's beam, he can whip that thing around on a battlefield and he can kill hundreds of Israelites. So they're like a lawnmower on the battlefield. And you don't want these guys that have a height advantage and they bring it with them with their own legs. That's a dangerous thing for other Israelites. So it's common. We saw it with David and Goliath where two armies face off 
and you say, you send out your champion, I'll send out my champion. And the whole idea is people don't have to die. You get a champion that wins or loses, and if both sides are honorable, you, that decides and determines the winners, and the other side gives up ground because your best guy can't beat our best guy. And so Ben Aya is clearly in, in a situation like that, perhaps. It doesn't say that. Um, but in killing this Egyptian, the whole point of the story is Ben Aya is protecting the Israelite army from that guy. And he puts himself in harm's way so other people don't have to. So in the church... When the wolves come, when the lions come, I would argue there's things, there's people called bulldogs. And healthy churches have people that will not tolerate or accept people coming into the fellowship just to prey on the people of God. No, thank you, not here. You don't get to come here and do that to us. And so you have people, and here's the weird thing with a bulldog. The bulldog's personality, if, you, if, they're in, if they're on your side, they're lovable, they're cuddly, they love to make people laugh, they're sweet, and they're quiet. And they protect without reservation to themselves. And most of the bulldog personalities are fairly quiet people. But if you mess with their family, they become something else. Something else happens to them. When the Israelite shows up, when the lion's in the pit, when there's two lion-like men of Moab, right? They're dressing up as little lion, putting on little lion helmets and coming into battle or something. No, not here. You don't get to pretend you're a lion in our church. Your identity is as a human being. You don't get to say you're a lion and come here and preach that to other people. So ironically, bulldogs are bred to take on bulls. That's why they're called bulldogs. Little things like this. But they're bred to taunt bulls so that when the Spanish people would play with bulls, they could protect the humans from the bull. So you got this image of a bulldog. They're very aggressive. They have no concern for size differences whatsoever. So they will bite the bull, and, and, and this is maybe PG, sorry about that. The bulldogs would train to target the bull's special parts because they could reach them. And they'd get under there and they'd cause enormous amounts of pain for people that wanted to do harm to the, to the humans. And so there are sometimes people in a church that really don't care what the threat is, what the size is. They'll throw themselves in the middle of it and it will be more painful to deal with the bulldog than it will be to endure the bulldog and try to target people within the church. They're the gatekeepers. They're the guards. They're the ushers. They're the people that say, nobody gets past me to hurt these sweet people that I love. That's a bulldog. And kingdoms are built because people like Ben Aya exist in the kingdom. I always thought I was one of those bulldogs. And maybe I was for a season. And God called me to some other things. He gave me this fascination with the Bible. Right? So in that sense, a bulldog's willing to say no to people that want to push their own will upon a body. A bulldog is willing to escort somebody out that's going to be disrupt, disrupting the teaching of the word. A bulldog's willing to set boundaries, parameters, and enforce them. They fight to protect the flock. There are story upon stories, if you go online, of people that attack churches, and there will be one or two guys, godly men, that put themselves in harm way to protect the flock. I think some people are wired this way. God makes them. He raises them up, and they say in their head, nobody touches my people, like a bulldog. And I'll, I don't care if I get hurt. I'm going to stand in the way. So you get Benaiah, who's kind of an immovable force, 
and you get Abishah, who's kind of an unstoppable force, right? Killing hundreds of people. And you have these two, con you got the immovable, immovable force and the unstoppable force that come together and serve David. He's got these two champions. You can't touch these guys. Benaiah didn't kill 300 people in one fight, but he fought about 300 fights, many fights. He's happy to get into fights. So he holds the line, he rips the spear out of the enemy's hands, and he kills him with his own spear. So he knows how to hold up the standard, and I would argue bulldogs know how to build kingdoms. That you have to have some standards, and they have to be protected. Verse 26, also the mighty warriors were Abish, Ashael, the brother of Joab. We know him as Speedy, right? The story where he wants to be the one that he runs faster than everybody else. El, Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. First of all, his dad's name is better than his. Had a bird named after him. El, Elhanan, the son of Doho, we should know in 2 Samuel 21, is giant killer number three. So he's, he's in the list. Then you get 27, Shamoth, the Herohite. He's not the third of the three. Helaz, the Pelonite. Ira, the son of Ikesh, the Tekonite. Abiezar, the Anathothite. Shibakai, the Hushathite. He's giant king, killer number four, 2 Samuel 21. Um, by the way, the fifth giant killer isn't on the list because he comes from the next generation. He's one of the kids. So it's important to know that kingdoms are built, giants are killed, not just by one generation, but because they're discipling the next generation to fight the fights and go to battle. So you get the fifth giant killer, but he's not in this list. He's not of this generation. David's nephew uh, is the one that does it. He's not listed here. So it's good to see that the heart of the enemy, the heart of the mighty men is getting passed on to the kids. Eli, the Ahohite, verse 30, Maharari, the Nephath, I'm saying these with a Minnesota accent. Helad, the son of Bana, the Nethaphathophite. Uh, Ithai, the son of Ribai, of Gibeah, the sons of Benjamin. Benaiah, the Pirathonite. Hurai, the brooks of the brooks of Gosh, Abiel, the Arbathite, Asmaveth, the Barahumite, Ilaba, the Shaalbanite, the sons of Hashem, the Gizanite, Jonathan, the son of Shega, the Harahite. The word Shega there is a shortened version, again, of the word Shamoth. <clears throat> Buried in there, changed the name. That's the third of the mighty three buried in the list of the 30, right? But his kid, Jonathan, he was also one of the 30. Ahim, the son of Sakar, the Herahite, another Herahite. Eliphal, the son of Ur, back from where Abraham came from. Like, he's Babylonian, right? Uh, or Persian. Hefer, uh, he likes cows and beef. Hefer, the Me Mechacrethite. Ahijah, the Pelonite, Hezro, the Carmelite, he likes candy. Narite, the son of Ezbi. Joel, the brother of Nathan. Mibar, the son of Hagri. Zelok, the Ammonite. Wait a second. An Ammonite is one of the mighty men? So it just occurred to me when I hit verse 39 that they've been naming the nationality and the, the family group of each of these guys. You notice how few of the tribes of Judah have shown up? Who's building the original kingdom of Israel? What's the writer trying to say with all these nationalities? Tell you what, when God builds a kingdom, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or not. It matters if you want to follow the king. That's it. So here you got Zelek the Ammonite that says, I'd rather serve David and David's God Yahweh than what I got back in Ammon. 
So I'm going to give up my life. I'm going to go live in a cave and I'm going to support this guy who doesn't even have a kingdom yet. And I'll serve him with my life. That's Zelek the Ammonite. I don't know much about Zelek because this is all we get, but I want to get to know that guy in heaven. What made you change? What made you go from your old life to this one? What made you deny your entire family history to come serve Yahweh? And I have a feeling the answer is going to be because Yahweh was good. And I wanted to serve the right side of the battle. Naharai, the Barathite, the armor bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gerub, the Ithrite, Uriah, the Hittite, we know his name, David killed him, doesn't get mentioned here, Zabad, the son of Ali, Adina, the son of Shiza, that's a, a, a suburb in Minnesota, the Reubenite, chief of the Reubenites, and 30 with them. He had his own little pack that followed him around. David didn't just lead men, he led leaders. And I think that's interesting in verse 42. Kingdoms are built not just because of one leader, but because a group of leaders gather around a common idea to serve the Lord and King. David made mighty men. He didn't make a bunch of slackies. This guy leads people and manages people. Verse 43, Hanan the son of Maaka, Joshaphat, uh, he's a big guy. They called him big guy Josh, the Mithnite, Uzziah, the Ashtarathite, Shammah, and Jael, the sons of Hotham, Ararite. Verse 44 shows us two brothers that fought together. Isn't that cool? Brothers fight together. And I think that's like blood brothers, but it's also just spiritual brothers. But these are blood brothers, and they do this and they make this decision together. When Jesus picked his disciples, he had a couple of those brother sets that go together. When two brothers agree on something, and those of you with brothers, you know this, it's hard for two brothers to agree on a large number of things. But when they do agree on two things, they're an unbreakable bond. They got trust that, go, that goes all the way back to childhood. So it's a beautiful thing when you see two brothers that are fighting for the kingdom together. Verse 45, Jedael, the son of Shimri, Joha, his brother, there's another set, the, Tur- the Tizite, and Verse 46, Eliel, the Mahavite, Jerobiah, and Joshaviah, the sons of Elnaam, Ithma, the Moabite. Again, a Moabite is part of the crew. Eliel, Obed, and Jashiel, the Mezobite. 2 Samuel 11 tells us all about Uriah. It's interesting here that Uriah wouldn't go home while his men were in the field. We get a little sampling with the story of Uriah the Hittite. By the way, Hittite, that's not Jewish either, right? This is another enemy kingdom. But this guy sacrifices his own desire to go home to be with his wife, to lay on a doorstep waiting for his king, and will sacrifice everything. Until the battle's won, this guy's all in committed. And Uriah's the one that David saw as disposable. What were these men like to a guy these were valiant soldiers. And let me say this too to the ladies in the room. What were their wives like? What kind of wives support a guy to be this kind of guy? And and because they, they're making sacrifices too. Like husbands and wives, they're one flesh. They go in it together. So what does it look like when you got women that support their men to be these kinds of warriors? So they put others before themselves. Every single one of these names are mighty knights of the kingdom. They established the idea of knighthood of men that will protect the realm. And they get named in the word of God by name in the same way that the people of God are named in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your name is in a book like this. What's the little snippet they put after your name? 
How are you helping to build the kingdom of Jesus? What are you doing in that kingdom? Where do you fit? And honestly, one of these things, I, for some of us, it's like, man, I want to be one of those men. For some of us, it's like, I just want to freeload. I just want to be in the kingdom. And I love that there's mighty men, but then honor those guys that do that work. Honor those women that support those guys. Hold them up. Ammonite, Hittite, Moabite. David knew how to take enemies and make them into friends. That's how you build kingdoms. We don't hate our enemies. I, it drives me crazy how Christians just don't get this. I hate the sin. I hate the stupid worldviews. I make fun of those worldviews. You guys know that. But I love the people. Those people are my future brothers and sisters. And I'm going to live in the kingdom of God with them forever if they can accept Jesus Christ and join that kingdom with me. They're not my enemy. The stupid ideas are my enemy. And I will fight them to my dying day. But the people of God need to come into the kingdom of God and they need to come out of foolish worldly worldviews to do that. There's discipling that has to happen. So David takes foreigners and he helps them to become part of the kingdom that David builds. David knew how to discern sincerity from deception. He knew how to reward a true heart. A Hittite just coming into his camp would be naturally assumed to be a spy. Uh, an Ammonite, a Moabite, of course they're spies. Of course they're trying to get close to David. But David somehow or another knew how to recognize a heart and elevate a mighty man who had a sincere heart regardless of where he came from. Do we have that ability in the church today? No matter where somebody comes from, what walk of life they had, what sins they were part of before they came to the church, do we have the ability to recognize a sincere heart versus a faker, an opposer? And do we know how to reward and elevate and love and bring into the family people that are sincerely seeking out God? And do we know how to recognize a spy when they're in our midst? They're just here for themselves. What does that look like? What is that? There's a, there's a spiritual discernment that has to happen. David had that discernment. That's how he built his kingdom. Everyone had their part in this kingdom. They all, I think the writer is trying to say they all built this kingdom together. Right? So if you're back in Babylon and you're a Babylonian and you want to come help build Jerusalem, there's room for Babylonians. If you want to sincerely follow Yahweh and seek him with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, come on board. Come help us rebuild the city. David's remembered here for those that were around him. So will Ezra and Nehemiah be remembered by the people that come to help them build the kingdom. So will we in the church be remembered by the people that we gathered with and gained family with to build the church around us. Like, it hasn't changed. It's the same God. He works with human beings just like you and me. He always has. Isn't that awesome? Like, I find this really encouraging stuff. And I don't even need to be named. Like, I could be a shama. I don't care. Like, I'm not in it for that. Neither are you guys. Like, I just want to be in the kingdom. I want to serve my king. What does that look like? They don't start out as mighty. They start out like me and you. They don't start out as great. They start out as people just saying, I'll serve. What, what can I do? How can I serve? And then you ignore every other distraction in life other than what gets you closer to Jesus. And that's the hardest part of the battle that we fight. You want to win 300 battles in your life? Put your focus on Jesus and don't take your eyes off of him. Like even when I screw up, ignore me and focus on Jesus. When Mike says something that is off track, ignore him and put your focus on Jesus. Family, friends that are of the world, if they tell you to step away from your pursuit of Jesus, ignore them and put your focus on Jesus. You will win every time. You'll go down in the history books as a champion and a mighty servant of God. And isn't that what we want? To get to before our king and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You stuck it out. Well done. 
man, I want to hear God say that someday. That's all I want. And you start to put your heart's desire on what the king is going to say about you. So you can say these things that are all essential to God's work. I think they're all essential today. Um, They actually build kingdoms. And Jesus is the fulfillment of a perfect king. David's just a shadow of a good king. But Jesus is the king. He's building a kingdom too. He's building a church. Jesus will take enemies and he'll give them new hearts and he'll give them purpose and place within his kingdom. He'll forgive their sins. Jesus will employ everyone according to their gifts and talents and he'll use different people differently. Jesus is going to build his kingdom by discipling and training unmighty people to be mighty people. Jesus is taking everybody from all walks of life in all places and he's teaching them how to live holy and serve the kingdom. He's doing the same thing. And so you see this group of mighty men. This is David's church. This is his home church. These are the people that built the kingdom. Jesus is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And even better, he defines himself, just like David, as our shepherd. He's here to serve and protect us. So he draws a hedge around us and he guards us. So the followers of Jesus, they repent. They join Jesus, just like the mighty men did. They're family with Jesus, just like we're called to be. And they learn God's word together, which is what God told the church to do. Like it hasn't changed. This looks exactly like the church. It's just a foreshadowing of it. God uses admin, friends, brotherly kindness, loyalty, humility, food protectors. I like those people. And he uses people with talent and competence, but he also uses bulldogs and guards. And he uses followers and he uses people of sacrifice and he uses the masses to follow and build a kingdom. That's what God does. It's God, what God did with David. It's what he's still doing today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this list of mighty men. We thank you for a focus on how you build kingdoms and how you do it effectively and how you have always done it effectively. Lord, this kingdom looks very different than what our world says a kingdom looks like or how it's built. I see that, Lord. We all see that. This world says kingdoms are built with money and power and popularity and prestige. But in the spirit, kingdoms are built very, very differently. They're built with valiance and mighty men. They're built with men and women that are honorable and loyal and kind because our flesh is always and ever selfish. And as we fight those battles and we become servants of one another, humbling ourselves to each other, not taking advantage of one another, but loving and being kind to one another, Lord, that is in its essence what you, where you provide and you start to build something very new and very supernatural. And we love you for that, Lord. We love you for your might your kingship, your rule, and that you've created a kingdom of love, not a kingdom of nationality or ethnicity or patriotism. Lord, you've created a kingdom of God. And Lord, we want to serve in that kingdom. We, we love you and we live in this world. Lord, we want to be gracious and at peace with all people to whatever we can be. But Lord, when they start coming for our families, when they start coming for our food, When they start coming for those things that we care about, the word of God, the worship of the saints, the fellowship of believers, Lord, you know that we have a a job to do to to keep and maintain a kingdom. So Lord, give us guidance in that. Give us wisdom. Give us grace and truth. And give us peace. And give us great joy. Give us evenings around the campfire in the cave, Lord, where we can be family and be connected to one another like David and his men were. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.